Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Well, my name is Matt and it's a privilege to be able to uh, uh, share God's Word with you this morning. And I'm particularly excited about this one. I've had a lot of weeks to think about this. Um, so it's, um, I'm really keen to get into this. The story that we're looking at this morning is uh, one that is so well known that even people who don't read the Bible understand that what the phrase walking on water means, kind of. And you may have heard it in your day-to-day conversations with people, you may have used the phrase yourself, and it's often used in a way which communicates something along the lines of one's uh, inability to do something which is impossible. If you're a tradesman, you've probably used that phrase several times this week. You know, when people want the impossible for as cheap as possible. But it's a well-known story. And as is often the case when we come to stories that we've heard over and over again, especially stories from the Bible, stories that we're familiar with, it's hard for us to hear new things, isn't it? Often. And the other problem that we face when we come to a story like this one is that we interpret it, or how we interpret it, or how we hear it, um, we, we hear it or interpret it through certain lenses or certain frameworks. And that was certainly my experience as, as I grew up in the church listening to this particular story preached many, many times. The other thing that we need to take into account when we come to a story, especially from the Gospels um, in particular, is that, is that we need to understand the audience to whom it's written. And there are, in fact, three audiences to the Gospel of Mark, or to any of the Gospels for that matter. Firstly, there's Mark's uh, intended audience, the people to whom he wrote the Gospel in the first place. Predominantly Gentile converts to Christianity living in and around Rome or in the Roman Empire. And when he wrote this Gospel some 40 years after the death of Jesus... He did so with a certain goal or a certain intention. And as we've been discovering, as we walk through the, 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 the Gospel of Mark and as we've kind of touched in on some of the other Gospels, we know that each of the Gospels have a, a specific intention or a specific focus that the author is working towards. And that's because they have a different audience in mind. So that's the first audience. The second audience is what I've called a future audience, and and that's us. So anyone who now reads or interacts or hears the gospel since it was written fits into the future audience category. So so that's you and me. One of the difficulties that we face uh, when we uh, look at a gospel that was written some 1,900 years ago Um, is that in many cases we've lost an understanding of the nuances of the text of the original language. The cultural contexts and the historical meanings are not only very old, but they're very foreign to us. And that's where study and, uh, and reading and, and thinking come in, into play. So, so don't switch off your brains just because someone has stepped up to deliver the word of God to you. We need to switch our brains on and engage with this passage in an intellectual way, in a way that helps us to understand. And, and my job is to help you do that. And we're going to have some fun with that this morning. But there's a third audience. And this is the audience that I'm particularly interested in at the moment where I'm at in my study of the scriptures and it's, and it's the audience that we're going to kind of focus in on today. And that's the audience of the one that sits at the level where the story actually takes place 
In other words, the characters who are in the story, who are experiencing it as participants in it. Does that make sense? So there's the audience that Mark was writing to, the reason that he penned the gospel, and of course we know that God is speaking through him, through the Holy Spirit, so it's God speaking. So there's that audience. There's the, the audience of us now, and when we read the scriptures, we, the Spirit of God teaches us and leads us in all truth, and so we also hear what God is saying and what Mark is saying through what he's written. But there's the people who exist in the story. And I find it very helpful to try and get our heads and our minds and even our imaginations around what's going on for them because when we can connect with them then we get a bit of an insight into what is going on right there and then and that's very helpful. All three of those things are important and as Brett was saying last week, you know, it's still possible to read the scriptures at a, at a face value and be incredibly blessed by what you read. And that's one of the mysteries of the gospel. The Holy Spirit brings truth and reveals truth. And we certainly can do that. But if you're willing to do a bit of work, and you can rest a little bit, because I've done most of the work for you in the past three weeks, but I'm gonna, I want you to engage with this this morning. If you're willing to do a bit of work and are prepared to dig just a little bit deeper into the text and immerse yourself into the context of the culture and the characters, there's so much more to discover. So much more. So don't just switch off intellectually. I'm also pleading with you, don't switch off emotionally either. This is, just, this is not just a story written for fun to fill a book. <laughs> this is an eyewitness account, a retelling of a historical event that involved real people, people who had emotions and feelings just like you and I. And so let's not be oblivious to that. Let's connect with that. Let's do it. Before we read the story in Mark, because that's where the series is, I want to comment just very quickly, um, or maybe not quickly, on the nature of Mark's version of events. In comparison to the two other Gospels where we also find that story, which is in Matthew and in John. Let's consider Matthew's version. We're not going to read anything from there, but if you're playing along at home or you want to study this a little bit further during the week, you can find this story in Matthew 14. It's pretty much identical to Mark's version in every sense, except for one added little bit. I don't know, the bit about Peter walking on the water. <laughs> like that wasn't significant or interesting. You know, biblical scholars have argued and thought about and fought over why one gospel writer would include something like that and not the other. And in many ways, it's a little bit inconsequential, except, of course, we've just talked about the fact that authors have different audiences, and so there's a different reason for communicating different things. What's of particular interest to me, and I think us this morning, is, is why Mark doesn't include this story, because we know that Mark is most likely Peter's eyewitness account of the life of ministry of Jesus. So why would Mark not include a story in which Peter's a major player? That's a really good question. Well, here's the answer, I think. You see, in contrast to Mark... Matthew actually has a well-developed theme in his gospel of emphasising Peter's leading role amongst the guys. It's actually one of his major themes. So then for, it makes sense then for him to include 
the, the, the life and, and interactions of Peter with Jesus a whole lot more in what he's doing. That's one of the things that he does. The other thing that Matthew does is he, he has a particular focus in regards to Peter around his impetuous behaviour. You know, all the stories that we read about Peter being a bit, you know, speaking before he thinks and putting his foot in it and then putting it, you know. But most of those kind of analogies come out of Mark. And that's another theme that he develops. But that kind of takes a backseat to another theme that Matthew develops. And that's the overall theme of where Matthew wants his audience to understand that in general, the disciples struggled with a lack of faith. That's one of his major themes. So it makes sense for Matthew to include the little bit in the story about Peter stepping out of the boat and walking on the water with Jesus and then sinking and then needing help and then Jesus saying, you have little faith. It's one of his themes. It's not one of Mark's themes. So he doesn't feel that he needs to include it. And that's, I guess, the simple answer. What about, what else is there in, in Matthew's gospel that might be a little different? Well, there is one other interesting thing the way Matthew ends his account of this particular story. You see, when Jesus and Peter climb back into the boat, the wind stops. Then the disciples worship him and say, you are really the son of God. Mark doesn't mention that, but Matthew does. This acknowledgement by the disciples that Jesus is the Son of God is very significant and it's important for us to have this as a background piece of information because I think it helps for us to understand what's going on in Mark's version. You see, previous to this event, there's only two times in the Gospels where Jesus is addressed as the Son of God. The first is when he's being tempted in the desert by Satan and, and, the, and Satan says to him, if you are the Son of God, and it's a bit of a rhetorical question because he knows that he is, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. The second time that this name is used towards Jesus is when Legion, the demon that possessed the man who lived amongst the tombstones, we had that story just recently, when Jesus comes before him, says, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. You see, Matthew includes this particular detail because one of the other themes that he's developing in his gospel is that of the gradual process of divine revelation. And if you study Matthew's gospel, you'll see that it's a gradual process. And in Matthew's gospel, it's not actually till after the resurrection, which he indicates that the disciples actually got it. And it's just the way he's writing. What about John? We're getting to Mark, don't worry. What about John? You see, John's version of this story is the shortest of the three, but it has a very interesting and different perspective. And you can look this up at some point in John chapter 6. You see, in John's gospel, after Jesus feeds the 5,000 people, we read that it becomes very aware that the people who had witnessed the miracles of the multiplication of the bread and the fish begin to make noises about forcing Jesus to become king. And Jesus discerns this. And John tells us that in his version of the event. And in response to this, this revelation, Jesus withdraws further up the mountain to be by himself and pray. When evening came, the disciples got into the boat and began the journey across the sea. And John makes a point of noting that darkness has already set in when they do that. And interesting, that's one of the reoccurring themes of John's gospel. You're kind of getting a picture here of how this works. One of John's themes is that of light, that Jesus is the light. And so by including these kind of phrases in his version of events, more or less what he's saying is that, and I'm paraphrasing, is that without Jesus, there's darkness and despair. But with him, there's hope and light. Yeah. Amen. 
And so that's a theme that he's developing, but it's not a theme that Mark develops, so he doesn't include that part of the story. The other significant aspect of John's Gospel, which is particularly interesting, and it helps to inform in a moment when we read Mark's version, is the version of events, uh, what happens the following day. So they cross over the lake, they arrive where they're going, and you can read it for yourself later. But in short, this is what happened. Uh, John includes Jesus' discussion with the crowd that had tracked him down and kind of followed him all around the coast, and they're back in Capernaum, actually, the following day, later the following day. And it's at this place that Jesus gives some of his most profound teaching, if you like, or profound statements about who he is. He explains to the crowd that he himself is the bread of life. Remember, this is the day after the miracle of the multiplication of the bread and the fish. He explains to the crowd that he is the bread of life sent from heaven by God and that anyone who believes this will have eternal life. And it's from this point in John's narrative anyway that people begin to dwindle away from Jesus because what he has to say is too hard for them. And John actually makes a point of stating that, that many heard what he was saying and and stopped following him and turned away and went back to where they came from. And in John's Gospel, that's kind of the, the, the pinnacle or the arch of the parable, if you like. There's, there's all this growing crowd, growing crowd, growing crowd. Jesus says some stuff that's too hard to handle. The crowd dwindles, the crowd dwindles. Mm-hmm. By the time you get to the end of John's Gospel, it's just Jesus and the, and the 11. Mark's Gospel is a little different. Mark, uh, Mark's, the turning point in Mark's Gospel doesn't actually come till chapter 8. And, and, and the parable looks like this. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus, genuinely speaking, is moving his ministry north, 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 north. And then something happens and he turns around and heads south, 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 all the way back to Jerusalem where he dies. So there's kind of this peak like this. And that's just the way the authors have constructed what they are trying to communicate. It's a style of writing, if you like, a literary device. So as you can see, Matthew and John's version of this story is, whilst amazing, are very different to Mark's in many ways. There are different viewpoints. But when we look at them together, they paint for us a bigger picture. And that's where we're going this morning. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 6, we're actually going to read from Mark because that's where we are. And so let's get into it. I'm going to read the passage and then we're going to kind of go back through and work through some of the key words and phrases. So we're going to dig a little deeper into context and culture to see what we can understand and learn from this very familiar story. John chapter 6, starting from verse 45. Immediately, um, interestingly, in Mark's gospel, the word immediately is used 34 times. Immediately, 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 because Mark delivers a very fast-paced, action-packed story, if you like, of the life of Jesus. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat uh, to go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, after leaving them, he went up onto a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. For they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. 
When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. And as soon as they got out of the boat, people recognised Jesus and they ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to, where, to wherever they heard that he was. And whenever he went into villages, into towns or into the countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplace. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Wow. All who touched him were healed. Let's have a look at, at a couple of these interesting words and phrases which I think bring this narrative absolutely to life. I'm going to start back in verse 45. I want you, know, I want you to notice one word. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him. You see that word made? He made his disciples. You know, one of my favourite questions, well, it wasn't my favourite question when I had toddlers, but one of my favourite questions when it comes to studying the Word of God is why? 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 It's actually a good question, why? Because if you ask it with the right intent, really what you're doing is you're saying, what's going on here? What's the purpose of this word? It's deliberate, so what's the purpose of it? What does it mean? What can I learn from it? Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. The Greek word that... It, we're going to do a bit of Greek today. Is that okay? I'm not an expert on Greek. I'm just a learner like the rest of you. And I have to study really hard to get my head around it. But I think it's worth doing because this is the language that it's written in. So we need to understand it. That's one of the lenses that we need to get our head around. So, so don't switch off. Have some fun with this. The Greek word that is translated as made actually means to force, to compel or insist. That changes the passage, doesn't it? Immediately, Jesus forced his disciples to get into the boat. Jesus compelled them to get into the boat. He insisted, guys, into the boat, go. That's the, that's the force behind the phrase. Come on, in, off. I, I find that very intriguing. Very interesting that he had to force them into the boat and then only after that was he able to deal with the crowd and send the people away. This is intriguing. And I got to thinking, could it be that just like the crowds in John's version of this event, that the disciples potentially were getting caught up in this growing call to make Jesus king by force? And if they weren't getting caught up in it, was Jesus worried that they might? And sensing that the situation was changing very quickly, he goes, guys, you need to go now. I'll deal with this. And so he sends them away. After he's done that, he goes up the hill or up the mountain to be by himself to pray and talk with his father. And this he does all night. And we know that he does it all night because verse 48 tells us that he doesn't go out to the boat till sometime during the fourth watch, which is a, a Roman phrase. It means sometime between three and six in the morning. Uh, somewhere else in the text it says that it was still dark. So it was probably closer to three or four in the morning. So he's up praying all night by himself. I wonder what they talked about. That's another question I love to ask of the text. I wonder. And it's okay to wonder. It's okay to engage your imagination and your intellect. But I wonder what they talked about. Jesus and his father. Could it be that Jesus was consulting with his father about what the next move was going to be? I mean, it's obvious from John's account that the crowds were growing a little bit restless, a little bit antsy, I suppose. 
starting to presume some things about who Jesus was and, and wanting to kind of elevate him into something that he wasn't at this point. So maybe he was consulting with his heavenly father. What's the next step? What's the next move? Everywhere that Jesus was going now, large numbers of people were, were kind of coming to him, bringing their sick and, and people who were troubled by spirits. And, and of course, Jesus, he, he never turns them away. He always, he always heals and cares and, and shows compassion. But that has to be draining. Just before this story, we read a little account that um, just before the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is doing ministry and the disciples are doing ministry. And it's so much ministry that they didn't have time to eat. And Jesus goes, come on, fellas, let's go and find a quiet place. We need to rest. It's okay to rest. <laughs> but when they get there, the crowd finds them somehow. Like they've run right around the lake to be where he is. And, and that's when he has compassion on them because he sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd. And that's where the beginning of the feeding of the 5,000 happens. So he doesn't even get his rest. And so all this ministry happens, multiplying bread and fish and dealing with, it, with a crowd that's growing more and more excited about who Jesus might be. And I'm not surprised he needs to go up onto the mountain to rest, <laughs> to spend time with his father. Could it be that the compassion that he showed on the crowd, whom, as I said, he enlightened to sheep without a shepherd, caused the people to begin to view him in a way that was going to hinder his messianic agenda? And so he needed to kind of reset and refocus and touch base with his heavenly father. Make, make no mistake, and this is where we have to understand the audience that's involved in the story. Make no mistake that those who are looking for the coming of Messiah, this event, this feeding of the 5,000, had every hallmark of, of Old Testament prophecy stamped all over it, and it didn't go unnoticed. Brett touched on this last week, Psalm 23. He makes them lie down in green pastures and prepares a banquet table for them. They're not oblivious to these things. They're looking for them. And when they see it, they're going, is this the promised prophet? Let's make him king. And Jesus is going, no, <laughs> although he doesn't say that, but we can see by his actions that that's not the plan. And so he withdraws, and I think he sends the disciples away. So whatever it is that's going on, it seems obvious to me that Jesus needs time alone. But I also think that it's intentional that he sends them away because nothing Jesus does is without intention. And you see this over and over and over again when you study his life and ministry and the way he's developing his disciples around him. He sends them away to, over to the other side of the lake because he wants to teach them something. And as we see a little later on, it would seem that the disciples haven't fully grasped what happened the, follow, the, the previous day with the feeding of the 5,000 Let's come down to verse 47 and 48. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. This phrase, straining at the oars because the wind was against them, is, is fascinating. It literally means that they were being tortured by the effort because of the adversary. That's pretty heavy, eh? They were being tortured by the effort because they were facing an adversary. In other words, the wind was so strong that nothing they could do was going to help their situation. It was beating them. They had no chance in and of themselves of ever reaching their destination, none. The situation was totally overwhelming. It was out of their control. They were being over 
empowered by nature, who Mark labels as an adversary. That kind of tells me that it's intentional. It's part of something that God is doing. And I can't help but wonder if Jesus wants to teach them something about themselves. And perhaps more importantly, something about himself. Verse 48 and 49. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they saw him and were terrified. I've read this story hundreds of times. Probably hundreds of times. And I always find it slightly amusing to picture Jesus walking out onto the lake, catching up to the disciples and going right past them. (laughs) Sneaky Jesus. (laughs) Overtaking on the inside lane. What's with that? (laughs) You know why I thought that for so long? Because that's the framework framework that was handed to me as I was growing up in the life of the church. That's what I heard preached. So I just thought that was the case. You know what, as I think about it, it doesn't make sense, actually. It makes no sense why Jesus would do that. And it turns out that it's not what he's doing at all. Especially in the light of what he says to them immediately after when they see him standing on the water, right near their boat, in the middle of the lake in a howling windstorm. And to be fair, I'm not surprised by their reaction. I mean, think about it. How would you react? Like, actually think about it. How would you react? Try to connect emotionally and physically with the scene. How would you respond? And this is a great example, I think, of a Bible story that we're so familiar with that we actually have trouble connecting with the events with our genuine emotions. We just kind of read it and gloss over it. Oh, yeah, it was windy. The disciples were scared. They thought it was a ghost. Hello? That's pretty significant. That'd change your life, wouldn't it? No? Okay, just me then. It would. It would change your life. How would you feel? How do you think you would respond? Have you ever been caught in a sudden storm whilst at sea? Actually, that's a question. Have you ever been caught at storm by a storm at sea? I have. It's scary. For a few years before I was married, I worked for a pearling company out of a broom on the remote Kimberley coast and spent uh, two weeks on, one week off, kind of living and working on boats uh, in the remotest part of the Kimberley that you could ever get. It was so remote that they said in the, in the company induction not to walk away from the campsite or when you go on shore, don't walk too far from the beach because if you get bitten by one of the many venomous snakes that are there, that's where you'll die because you'll die before the helicopter can come to lift you out. But that was actually in the induction. You couldn't get any remoter than that. Oh, and although the beaches are really nice, don't swim in the water because, you know, there's sharks, crocodiles, irrigangi, jellyfish, anything that will and can kill you will if you're not swept away by the 12-metre tide. (laughs) I remember one particular day we were working in small tender boats 
and we were about, I don't know, two, three kilometres from the mothership, and it was a beautiful day. You've never been on a boat when it's just beautiful and the water's kind of thick like oil and it's just, you, you wish you were really fishing, that's what you wish you were doing, but you're working and it's just peaceful and there's a gentle breeze and the sun is shining, the water's a beautiful blue, it just kind of calls you in, I want to go for a swim, I want to go for a swim, and then you picture crocodiles. And... <laughs> And then we're kind of working, we know, oh, there's a bit of a thunderstorm coming, we'll keep that in mind. And at that time of the year, there were storms all the time. We'll keep that in mind, we'll keep that in mind. Next minute, it's on top of us. And we had two, two or so kilometres to go before we could get to, to the safety of the mothership. And uh, I was scared. It went from calm, like flat calm, to pitching and yawing like this. And I don't get seasick, but I was sick. We all were, even the guys that have been working on boats for a long time, in a flat little flat bottom barge. It was just a nightmare. And you actually genuinely become afraid. Do you know why? Because you can't do anything about it. It's not like when the engine breaks down, there's a moment of panic. Oh, they'll come and get us. We'll just drift for a while. It's not, it's not the end of the world. We're not going to sink. You know, it's not, it's not like that kind of dilemma. It's like we actually could die here because there's nothing we can do about it. I don't know that it even comes close to how these guys felt. Some of them are experienced fishermen. It's not the first windstorm that they've been in. But for Mark to include this phrase that they strained at the oars, knowing that they were not going to get where they were going, that kind of implies the severity of the situation. Can you picture yourself there? It's scary. It's scary. But listen to what Jesus says, because he gives us a clue as to what's going on here. Verse 50, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. It's time for some Greek. Have a look at this phrase. We're going to chuck it up on the screen and we're going to have a go at saying it together if we can get it up there. Ready? Yeah. No, I didn't hear you. Ready? One, two, three, go. Thar set ego, I am me for bass day. Really? Now you know what it sounded like in the room at Pentecost. <laughs> this all sounded like Greek to me. Thar set ego, I me for bass day. Apologies to any Greek scholars here. Do you know what that literally means? Have courage, I am. Be not afraid. Notice that. Have courage, I am. Be not afraid. What is Jesus saying here? These last few verses, in particular 48 to 50, have subtle, implied connections that Mark has drawn from the language of the Old Testament. Whilst all three gospel writers include the statement, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid, it is only Mark who includes the unusual statement about Jesus wanting to pass by the disciples. And this phrase has its background in the language that God uses when he revealed his glory to Moses in Exodus chapter 33. You know the story? When, Mark asked, when, Mark, when Moses asks to see God's glory, the Lord places him in the cleft of a rock and says, I'll, I'll, I'll go by you, I'll pass by you, but as I do, I need to cover you with my hand, because if you see my face, you will surely die. And so he covers Moses with his hand as he goes past, and then allows Moses to see the back of him as he's walking away. That's how powerful the glory of God is, that no one can see his face and live. But God passed by 
him. It's the same language. It's the same language. There's a similar example of this kind of event, and it's known as a theophany in 1 Kings chapter 19, where, where God said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Jesus intended to pass by them, not because he was trying to beat them to the other side, not because he wanted to overtake them because he thought that would be funny. He wanted to reveal something about himself to them, about who he was. And as if that were not enough miracles for one day, (laughs) the very moment that Jesus climbed into the boat, the wind stopped. No command No raising his arms, no rebuking the forces of nature, just calm. There's one more thing that I want to touch on um, because Mark says one more thing that I think has helped put this story into its correct context. And we find it in uh, verses 51 and 52. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down and they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. At first glance, you might be forgiven for thinking that what Mark means to say is that the disciples' hearts were hardened because they didn't understand about the loaves. But that's not quite what Mark means. And again, we can blame Greek for this because it's a funny language at times with words and phrases seemingly put back to front and the object of a word not necessarily always clear when it comes out in English. So I'll walk you through it. The disciples were amazed, and quite literally it means they were totally astonished and in wonderment at themselves. They were amazed, astonished, and in absolute wonder because Jesus had appeared before them walking on the water and that when He climbed into the boat, the wind stopped. That's what amazed them. That's the object of their amazement. Remember, the disciples as characters in this story they actually have a solid understanding of the implications of such an event. According to their understanding of the Old Testament, only God could do those things. Only God could walk on water. Only God could command the forces of nature. Only God could multiply food and feed multitudes of people. Only God could do that and they knew that. And I can't help but wonder if if Job 9 comes into their minds. Because, you know, the majority of them are well-schooled in the Old Testament. Listen to what Job 9 says. God is wise and all-powerful. Who has opposed Him and come out unharmed? He removes mountains without their knowledge, overturning them in His anger. He shakes the earth from its place so that its pillars tremble. He commands the sun not to shine. He seals off the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Only God, only God can do that. And they are eyewitnesses to that. They are eyewitnesses. It's no wonder in Matthew's gospel that he reports them falling down and going, you are the son of God. What else could they say? Now you'd think that they wouldn't be all so amazed by this because it's not the first time Jesus has done something like this actually because if you remember a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 4 Jesus commanded the winds and the waves to stop remember that? He rebuked them and they ceased and at that point they asked a very interesting question they said amongst themselves who is this man? Who is he 
he can command the winds and the waves. And just several hours ago in the narrative, they'd all witnessed the impossible. Five loaves of bread and two fish had been multiplied to feed 5,000 people. Do you know what? It's actually probably 10,000 people, maybe 15, because it's 5,000 men besides women and children. Who feeds 10,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish? Only God can do that. Only God. And they know it. So that begs a question as we close. And I'm hoping that this question will form the framework of your thinking this week. Because I want you to grapple with it, as I have been. Why do the disciples not understand this when he feeds the 5,000? Why did they not understand it right there and then? He performed an incredible miracle that should have helped them see that he was divine, that he was God. But it would seem that they'd missed the point. And actually, that's Mark's point, that they'd missed it. Did you get that? It would seem that they'd missed the point, and that's Mark's point. That's what he's drawing his audience's attention to. The primary lesson through this whole section of Scripture, of of Mark's Gospel in particular, is not that Jesus could feed large crowds, although that was a good sign. It's not even that he could walk on water. It's not even that he can command the forces of nature. The real lesson, what the disciples should have learned, was that Jesus is God. He's the divine incarnation of the living God. That's who he is. That's in fact one of the major themes running through all of Mark's gospel. As I said, Mark is a fast-paced, action-packed narrative that portrays Jesus uh, in a way that highlights his deeds and, and power, especially over the forces of nature and the forces of evil. And interestingly, and this is unique to Mark's gospel somewhat as well, there's a bit of a a counterbalance. There's a reluctance for Jesus to reveal himself as the Messiah. And yet that's exactly what he does. That's exactly what he does. And so here's the question for us today. If they, the disciples, having been witnesses to all these amazing things, could miss who Jesus really was, how much danger are we in of missing it also? Don't miss him. Don't miss him. Open your ears, open your eyes, open your heart and see him for who he really is. Thank you.